Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. For today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Greg Kelly from Neurohacker. Doctor, thank you for coming on to the show today. How are you doing? Doing really well. Thanks for having me on today, Desmond. Yeah, absolutely. You know, th this is a, a conversation that I've been wanting to have for a while. I've been following Neurohacker for, you know, well over a year now. And I'm, I'm going to get into why I kind of have like a, a fandom with uh you know, with your company here. But before I get into all of that, just to give people some of the groundwork for those who might not be familiar with, you know, your company, uh, can you just explain to us what exactly is Neurohacker? And for you personally, why did you get involved with the company? Sure. So um, our full name is Neurohacker Collective. And we've got a couple of different things under that umbrella. One is a, a podcast called Collective Insights, where uh, we, we have two channels. And that one's Jamie Wheel talking about a lot of things he's interested in, and others much more focused on health. Um, we also have a, a supplement brand called Qualia is the the brand name, um, and then you know we periodically get brought into things ranging from you know technologies to support the brain to hallucinogens to other things because of the neurohacker kind of idea behind us. So Neurohacker Collective was founded with the the I like to say the we is smarter than me, right? There's some brilliant people out in the world. Um, you know, can we tap into some of those resources as advisors or on specific projects to get access to their expertise? Um, and really, the, I guess the original idea of the three founders was, you know, let's make the world a better place. And, and what's the one thing we can do that would make the most meaningful up leveling? And they're consensus at the time was if we can get people's brains to work better, that should lead to a much better and more peaceful and loving society. So, you know, hence the neurohacker, um, you know, draw to me, right? There's, I have an interest in, frankly, all of those, those areas, a big interest in education, spent a lot of time in my professional life, working with patients as a naturopathic doctor, and then also you know, designing and using supplements for people. Yeah, I... I just want to take a second to kind of give people an idea about why this was an episode that was important to me and why I chose to like have you on as a guest. You know, I, you know, the, obviously for those who follow along with this podcast, this is a political podcast, talk about politics all the time. Be before when I was in college, you know, I went to school for psychology and for neuroscience. You know, I'm fascinated by how the brain works, why the brain works the way that it does. And the different experiences that happen within our lives that lead to the different chemical interactions that we have in our brain. And I, I guess more so to the psychology side, how it leads to people developing the their their personal beliefs, their personality traits, so on and so forth. So I've always been fascinated by, you know, just how these different external and internal stimuluses affect us and how it leads to who we are as people. And so kind of coming to this episode now, you know, one of the things that I hear all the time when I talk to people is just how much being chronically engaged with the news affects us negatively. You know, so that is something that I hear from people all the time. It's hard to stay engaged with the world because 
you know, the so many different negative stories that we hear all the time can just take a mental toll on us. So another reason why I wanted to have this conversation with everyone today. So I want to start a little more narrowly focused on what it's like for people to be on their smartphones all the time. I think we all kind of implicitly, you know, know that being on our phones is bad for us all the time, but I thought it would be better if we could just speak to the science of it a little bit more. So I kind of wanted to break this down kind of a little by a little here. First and foremost, can you just talk to us, doctor, about what exactly happens to our eyes, you know, while we spend so much time being on our smartphones on a day in and day out? Like what kind of effects does that have on our on our eye health? Yeah, so usually neuroscientists will talk about the visual system. So that's the combination of both the, like our eye, then the back of the eye, the retina, and then the projections into the visual parts of the brain, which were very visual animals compared to other animals might have a lot more of their brain dedicated to, as an example, the sense of smell with dogs. We have a huge amount of that territory dedicated to visual um, processing. So th this is incited people. Non-sighted people would, would use that terrain differently. Um, and that's actually the idea of qualia, where that, that word comes from that I mentioned is one of our brands. Qualia is about your sensory experience of the world, which yours would be unique to you, mine would be unique to me. Everyone's is slightly unique. And, and that comes through how our senses interact with the outside world. And when we talk about a smartphone, there's been a number of studies over the years that have looked at reading a, a physical book versus reading a, a, the same text off a smartphone for college work or retaining information from a novel. And uniformly, all the studies come back in agreement that we learn much more poorly when we're reading on a phone than we do from a book. And so the question then is why? And one of the recent studies, when it looked at that, what it, what it found was, so the frontal cortex is the part of our brain that does a lot of what we think of as higher level cognitive functions, yeah. is that that part of the brain was just way more active when we were reading the same thing on a phone compared to reading it from a book. Now, both produce some cognitive load, right? Because we're learning, but what we were um, loading the brain was just much more demanding when we were engaging with the phone to learn that same information. So um, we'll, I think, get into later the idea of mental energy, mental effort, but you had asked specifically then about the visual system yeah. and what makes it much more strenuous on our visual system with a phone. Some of it's just pure physiology. When something is closer to our eyes, it takes more work for the muscles that focus our eyes. Part of that's called the near triad um, reflex to just really rotate. The, the eye muscles so that our focal point moves in. So think of like holding a weight just over and over for you know half hour or an hour, you'd start to see the muscles shake and vibrate. So that's visibly what would happen um, with these small muscles in the eye when we're um, fundamentally straining to focus on something that's as close as most of us will hold a phone. So that's one. Phones also put off quite a bit of blue light where like a e-reader, as an example, wouldn't. That's just reflecting light. And the same with a page on a book. And blue light, especially many things in physiology, the dose makes the poison. So something's not necessarily good or bad, but the amount of it may make it so. Okay. And so it's the amount, right? We're getting high concentrations of high. So if you think simply lights like the colors of a rainbow, well, natural light is made up of the full spectrum of colors. 
and they change across the day. So it would be more of certain colors early in the day, less later in the day, that type of thing, where we're getting a constant with the phones. And the last thing would be flicker. So again, like where I guess our visual system is designed to detect and respond to objects in the natural world, but things on a computer or other screen, so a cell phone as well, or smartphone as well, um, flicker to deliver that information. And the flicker is so quick, we don't visually detect it consciously, but our brain's detecting it. So that combination and probably many things we don't know about end up making it so the brain just has to physically work a lot harder when we're engaging with things on a smartphone. Let me um, let me kind of expand off of that because obviously, you know, what we're talking about here is putting a lot of stress on your mind, you know, internally. I mean, sometimes probably, you know, without you even noticing how much of a stress it's putting on you. I think one of the things that people have been able to feel though, and this is something that feels as though it's been increasing again, like year over year, it seems though like the rates of anxiety have been going up around around the country, you know, maybe around the world for all I know. But I know that the more I talk to people, the more prevalent it seems that people seem to be experiencing anxiety. And it feels as though people are experiencing it more than we used to, or at least from my perception, it's coming off that way. Now, I have long felt that there is a strong association between increased levels of anxiety and being on our smartphones all the time, especially engaging in social media. Is there actually uh, some kind of like data around that? Is there some information around that? Like, is our nervous system negatively impacted from being on social media all the time? There's definitely a correspondence. So the studies I've seen to date on that would be more what I think of as observational studies. So ones to try to figure out if there's a relationship and that relationship is really strong and it shows up over and over in multiple countries of people from elderly down to college students and younger. And the, there's a couple of things that may confound it a little bit, but one is um, what would be thought of typically as addictive smartphone users. So they have a really strong correlation with that and anxiety or depression, mood-related issues, so to speak. But there's also a strong correlation just for the amount of time spent on a smartphone. Now, why that is, I don't think anyone you know, could say with certainty, oh, it's because this and this happens in the brain. I think it would be a combination of things. I think part of it's what we're consuming as we're engaging with the smartphone. I think part gets back into this idea of mental energy that I mentioned just in passing. And for the audience, I think this is super important to understand that the brain is the, by, I guess, weight, the largest consumer of energy in our body. It's estimated, and you see this figure over and over at the literature, that the brain consumes about 20% of the calories that we consume in a day. So it's a voracious consumer of energy. And evolutionarily, Part of the, at least some of the, the people I've read on this, believe that one of, we're the, among the only you know, animals, mammals, that have a big brain. And that's because nature doesn't want to, um, it wants to conserve energy, not send it to things that consume a lot. So um, I, I think one of the evolutionary senses is that our you know, ancient forebearers going back a million or two years ago learn to share food, which is super uncommon in the animal kingdom. And yeah. that gave a much more stable supply of food, which some of that energy now could be put into making our brains bigger, 
so that we could become even better at sharing and social or pro-social behaviors, right? It kind of a virtuous loop. But bottom line is our brain is still limited by the amount of energy moment to moment that it can use in different processes. And if it's using some for X, there's less for Y type of thing. So if we're putting more cognitive load on our frontal cortex because we're reading a from a smartphone instead of a book, as an example, or engaged in a human conversation, there's now less for emotional management or emotional self-regulation. So, you know, my expectation would be, you know, when it's being used for this, now there's less to go to this other area. And things like, you know, regulating our emotions are energetically more cost costly than some of the other things our brain has to do. Yeah. And I have in my own life been trying to find more time away from my cell phone, trying to find ways to just, you know, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it over here, not do this, you know, put it down. It, it feels like it does take a toll on you after a while, you know, and, you know, one of the things that I came across when I was like looking through your page, uh, this was maybe like, a, you know, two months ago, was the idea that even if your cell phone is within close proximity to you, it's still taking your attention. And I was kind of, uh, I was kind of confused by that. Could, could you go into a little more detail about that, about how even if you're not on your phone, but just having it near you, it's still kind of absorbing some of your mental attention? Yeah, so the neuroscientists really talk about what the brain does in terms of tasks. And then they they bucket certain tasks together into bigger, what are called domains. And one of the big domains is complex attention. You know, that's our ability to focus, to not get distracted, to, you know, quickly respond to things in the environment, right? So attention is a huge consumer of our brain energy needs. Um, and for good reason, right? Like, you know, that our, even during sleep, our auditory system is going to constantly be scanning our environment for unpredicted noises. And those unpredicted noises would then alert it up. Something in the environment might not be safe. I better wake you up type of thing, right? So um, we're constantly scanning our environment. A lot of it's being filtered out before it gets to you know, our conscious brain, but there's a huge amount of the energy resources that the brain's consuming are in our sensory apparatus, our vision, our auditory. And what happens, and again, I don't think anyone studied this, but this would be my guess. Like um, we've come to rely on our, our smartphones as part, not only of what we use, but notifications as an example, are something that now our attentional systems come to learn like, oh, I better you know, dedicate a little bit of energy to paying attention in case the notification goes off on my phone. And so even if they're not, we're still dedicating resources to that that can't be used somewhere else. So the bottom line is that you know, sleeping with your cell phone near your bed ends up typically negatively impacting quality of sleep as an example working with your cell phone nearby, especially if you've got it so that notifications go off and you're prone to check those, really disrupts focus. And neuroscientists use an idea of, it's called attention residue. But the, the gist of it would be, you know, um, lots of things can disrupt our flow and focus. Um, a notification on a smartphone, choosing to check email, all of these little things that don't seem, you know, like a big investment it disrupts doing it, but they can take us five to 10 minutes to get back into that focused flow state. Again, that's the idea of the residue. So yeah, I know, you know, 
Apple products, which is what I tend to use, have now a focus setting. Yeah. And I think for most of us, if we are going to have our cell phones nearby, we'd do better if we take advantage of some of those um, things that allow us to disengage our attentional system from paying attention to the phone. Yeah, I think turning notifications off has been a great thing for me. Um, that has done wonders for me personally. But, you know, before we get into anything else, I, I do want to take a, a quick break. But, you know, when we come back, I, I want to talk more about some of the positive things that we can do. You know, we spent a lot of time focusing on the negatives about smartphone usage and how it kind of goes against us. But I want to talk about some of the things that we can do uh, in our everyday lives to kind of have more positive impacts on our minds. We'll We'll be right back after this break. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at Betty'sDivine.com. Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. So before we went on the break, we were talking about just the different ways that cell phones basically, you know, rob us of all of our good energy. You know, they're constantly finding ways to, you know, infringe upon our eyes and our nervous systems, you know, just obviously, I think we all know, you know, deep down that they're kind of a, an issue, but we are all addicted or need them one way or the other for our everyday lives. But so one of the things I like to focus on here is what our response should be, because obviously we're not breaking up with, you know, cell phone use on a day in and day out basis. We have to learn how to live with these things and also the negatives that come with being on them all the time. So one of the things I want to focus on is something I came across when looking at your, your accounts again, which was the power of breath work. It seems like something that you guys talk about pretty consistently. I saw a post that you had recently that said that you know, breathwork was one of the most powerful, like, uh, neuroscientific tools for optimizing health, increasing concentration. Can you just talk about 
what kind of uh, influences, you know, just, I guess, deep, like rhythmic breathing actually has on the mind? You know, we hear about that all the time, but what is the science behind it? Well, the, um, our breathing, specifically our rate of breathing, is one of the quickest ways to shift what's called heart rate variability. So our, we tend to think of the heart as being like a metronome, like beat, 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 really, you know. But what the heart is constantly doing is slightly altering the speed between beats, accelerating and decelerating. And the deceleration part is our parasympathetic nervous system. So like our you know, tended befriend, um, relaxation nervous system, what accelerates it would be the sympathetic, the fight or flight. And so neither is bad, but we want both to be in balance. And what tends to happen is, especially when it comes to like the brain not working well um, or health issues is we're sympathetic dominant. So like, as an example, one of the things I, I read that they train military and police for is things, techniques to make it so that their heart rate would slow down because the, the tendency in a stressful environment is our heart rate really ramps up, sympathetic takes over. And when that happens, we can be literally almost blind to the world around us. Right? We can get tunnel vision, as you yeah. described. So breathing is one of the things that you know the Navy SEALs teach all of their um, people. And coming out of the Navy SEALs, most of um, those experts often teach a technique called boxed breathing. And um, I know I've used a lot what I call paced breathing with patients and personally. And then um, Andrew Huberman, he's a neuroscientist at Stanford with a, a podcast called might be the Uberman Lab podcast, something like that. He, his group has pioneered what they call physiological sigh. That's a breathing technique. So um, do you want to just spend a few minutes going into each one of those and how to do it? Sure. Okay. So I'll start with pace breathing because that's, in my mind, the simplest. And so what happens is physiologically when we breathe, depending on the pace of breathing, it will either cause almost like a resonance system. It will cause things to the way I think of it, if you were in a, a concert hall and hit a C note on one instrument, anything in that resonant space in that um, hall that can also vibrate at that C note will start to vibrate, even if the octave is slightly different. And that tends to happen in our body. And that the pace of breathing that seems to do that is six breaths a minute. You know, it maybe not precisely, but in that ballpark, you'll see okay. a lot of things physiologically line up. And if you were measuring heart rate variability, you'd see a big shift towards parasympathetic. So the goal would be simply five second breath in, five second breath out, just make it as, as flowing and natural as possible. And then do that for anywhere between two to five minutes. So simple, you know, um, breathing hack and the one okay. I've used the most. So very powerful, especially, you know, if we've just recently been stressed about something to, to recalm our nervous system. The, the Navy SEALs, what they like is called, I, and I think they call it either box breathing or tactical breathing. I've heard both. But um, the idea of a box breathing is, is four corners. So you would breathe in for about that same five seconds, then hold the breath for about five seconds, breathe out for five, and then hold it for five. So you create like a, a square, right? So five, 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 five. And again, okay. five's not, I don't think, it has to be precise, but you want to do a nice slow inhalation, exhalation, and not a, not too long of a hold that you're stressing yourself holding your breath. So that's okay. breathing. Also, that that's a bit more maybe when you need an 
oomph and energy. Box breathing is probably a bit better choice than the pace breathing. Pace breathing, I think, is a bit better when you're trying to get relaxed. And then the newest one, and this is Andrew Uberman's lab, I think is the pioneer, is what they call the physiological side. So what you do is you would breathe in through your nose as much as you can, and then take another breath after that, and then breathe out. And so that's that almost pause and further breath in when you feel like you'd already taken enough in. That's create the physiological sigh that has a profound effect on our nervous system. So that one's only now being studied. And in the recent study, all were, were beneficial for cognition and mood, but the physiological sigh seemed to be slightly better for mood. So, so any of those three are great options for the audience. You know, it's, you hear these things all the time, but I, I think sometimes, you know, when you hear them, I, I think in jest, it doesn't really have the same kind of effect. Or at least it, doesn't, it doesn't for me until like someone like breaks down like the, I guess the science behind it, you know, like how does doing X lead to Y? And these are the things that I'm always very fascinated by, you know, because we hear, for instance, about meditation all the time. You know, you hear about how good it is for you and, you know, how people should really be doing it more. But I, I think when it's, talked about in a very vague sense it doesn't really have the same weight as when you talk about it i guess in a more in in depth sense I, I guess speaking for myself again but one of the things i came across you know was that meditation reduces the density of the brain tissue you know that's associated with like anxiety and worrying and can you talk to me about exactly how that works and, and i guess like relay it back to breath work again so i don't know exactly how but my guess would be that like a big part of the issue with we'll say stress, but then anxiety and depression is we're spending a lot of our attentional resources scanning the world around us and often misreading those cues, right? We're, we're biased towards, oh, I should worry about this as opposed to you know someone that was less anxious, the same, you know, they may see the same information and it you know just passes right through. And what meditation tends to do, it, it causes us to shift all our attentional resources internally, whether we're focusing on our breath, whether we're focusing on a sensation in our body, whether we're doing like a mindfulness meditation practice. And so because of that, we're almost um, taking the strain off the attentional system that's almost overreacting or misreacting to the world around us. And you know, so I think that would be a big part of it. Like one of the things I've also said, this was an old study, but it was, um, I think it was a, a pre, pre-app. So I think they were using a computer software program, but on the program, there was a, a variety of faces and your goal was to pick out the smiling face from the group of face. And often there'd be more than one smiling face as quickly as possible. But they used that in some small studies for depression and anxiety because you're again teaching the brain in that case, instead of scanning the environment for the negative, like focus on what's positive in the environment. So anyways, I, I think it's more about that idea of shifting our attentional resources. And then the other thing with uh, meditation, which I think can be challenging for a lot of people, it's why I like um, breathing. Cause that like, as an example, the pace breathing, you know, you could, find on YouTube a video that's just, you can sync your breath to like something rising and, and falling to match okay. that five seconds in, five seconds out, right? As an example, or, you know, there's breathing apps. So you, you'll know you're doing it right. But 
if you would take like a high level yogi or you know tibetan meditation master for sure what what they're doing when they say they're meditating may be very different than what i'm doing if i said i was meditating like what they're engaging in would be in mentally very effortful and what i've seen is a lot of people that tell me they're meditating are doing something more like zoning out so they're they're what they're doing and what like like the high level um person are doing are, are really pretty discrepant it'd be like the difference between me you know playing piano and someone that actually knows how to play piano playing piano so so because that i think breathing is just an easier place to start because it's more concrete okay you know i i think one of the last things i wanted to talk about you know again uh, something that I've, you know, heard people talk about just, you know, in passing, but you don't really hear about exactly how it can help people particularly, but the idea of focusing more on positive things in your life, you know, we, uh, the idea, I guess, of positive psychology, it was something that's, you know, became more and more popular within the last couple of decades. And, you know, one of the things I saw that you guys were talking about was the importance of, you know, turning your attention to more positive experiences and trying to shift your your focus away from negative bias. What exactly happens for us as people when we do that? I guess on, on an internal um, on an internal basis. So the the idea usually you'll see in neuroscience is is called relevance. So again, this, because resources and energy are finite, the brain wants to conserve whenever it can. So until we convince something's or the brain that something's relevant, it won't put either the resources in or dedicate even more importantly, potentially new landscape, some of our, like, you know, the brain space to that. So as an example, you know, English is my first language. I studied some Spanish when I was a um, high school student, lived in Mexico one summer in high school and being around Spanish all day, I got really good at it that convinced yeah. my brain it was relevant and i took another two years and was actually worse after those two years than i was at that summer living there same thing happened with me with thai language i studied it for two and a half years in university but spent a summer in thailand and that summer was in the middle part of my education and that's when i was the best so the only way from like right now it goes back 30 years since my university time studying thai so I can still, you know, have a short conversation at a Thai restaurant, but the only way to get good at it again would be for me to convince my brain it's relevant to dedicate energy into that. And there's nothing in my current life that would convince it of, of that. So I think the, that idea of relevance, what we focus on convinces our brain that this is relevant. And then it becomes almost a self-replicating or, you know, like a, a merry-go-round, like it just becomes a, a vicious cycle. So if we focus on, you know, things that aren't creating joy in our life, then our brain will say, oh, it's important to find more of these and do a really great job doing that, right? Because we've convinced that it's relevant. Where if, conversely, you know, going back to that um, software program of find, find the, the happy face in the crowd, it's like, oh, this is the game we're playing now. Let me get better at that. So, so I think that that's really a big part of it. And then maybe, you know, more importantly are what I think of as pro-social behavior. So, 
you know, acts of kindness, gratitude can really make a huge impact on our, you know, overall sense of, you know, happiness, mental well-being, and they seem really rejuvenating for the brain's, you know, energy systems. You know, it's something that I've been trying to focus more and more on, you know, especially as time goes on, you know, obviously kind of like transitioning back to what I was saying in the beginning here, you know, for those who come to this podcast pretty consistently, this is a political podcast and being engulfed in politics all the time, it just absolutely drains the energy right out of you, you know? So I think it's important for, you know, those of us who stay consistently engaged with, you know, politics, what's going on in the world around you to not get so focused on the negatives all the time that you forget to focus on the more positive things in our, in our world and in our life, you know, cause it, it can actually wear you down and, and it becomes like the, it becomes a source of tunnel vision, just focusing on the negatives over and over and over again has an absolutely just devastating detriment to our brains. Uh, Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. Can you tell people where we can find out more about Neurohacker Collective online? Yeah, our website is neurohacker.com. We've got, um, like I said, the Collective Insights podcast can be linked to from that under education. We have a lot of blogs. Um, our um, social media person, Tina, does a great job on putting content, especially on Instagram. That's our main channel that we try to outreach and teach people about how the brain works and these things they can do to be you know, healthier, higher performing people. So those would be the best places to find us. Perfect. For those who are interested, the links will be in the episode description. So go ahead and click down there now and you will see the links that were just mentioned. Uh, thank you to everyone who checked out this episode today. If you liked it, please share it online, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, wherever you spend most of your time on social media. Thank you to Dr. Kelly and Neurohacker, and I hope to see you all in the next episode. Hey, everyone. Got three quick things here for you before we close out this episode. One, be sure that you're subscribed to the podcast because we have an epilogue of this episode coming later in the week. We recorded a few extra minutes tacked on to this conversation that you just heard. So be sure not to miss the epilogue, which will come out in a few days time. Secondly, if you did like this content and you want to support what we're doing here at Independent Thought, please sign up for our Patreon which helps to create what we're doing here in the future and helps us sustain what we're doing. That link can be found in the episode description. So click down there now and you'll see the link to our Patreon. And lastly, Independent Thought is looking to increase our team. So if you are interested in joining Independent Thought and helping us create more content, better content, DM me on Instagram at Independent Thought to learn more.